with me once again in your Bibles to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Picking up this week with verse 13 and finishing up the chapter. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask of me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We pick up with a bold statement that we left off with. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We mentioned last week how that's a wonderful, encouraging statement that is made for all to embrace and to realize that you call on one Lord, and while that one Lord is very singular and very narrow, all who call on him shall be saved. All who know him shall be saved. And that is anybody, whether you, no matter what your background, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what you have done, calling on him, leaning on him, trusting on him, you will be forgiven, you will be saved. But now he has to carry that and, and flesh that out a little bit more. And in a series of rhetorical questions, he kind of gives instruction. Now this passage has a very narrow and tangible application when it comes to the church and when it comes to God's means of using the church and using preaching and using the word of God to spread the gospel. But it also has, to borrow language from the confession, good and necessary consequences by which everybody in all walks of life may take this passage and apply it to your daily ministry as well. In these rhetorical questions, Paul addresses the earthly means by which God introduces himself. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great, wonderful. Who is that Lord? Who is he? And how do you come to know him? And the simple answer is you come to know him through words, through communication, through language understanding. God has created his image bearers with a desire and ability to communicate, even those who cannot physically use words have an ability in some way 
to communicate and understand. We are a receptive people in that sense. And with that craft of language, with that intricacy and connectivity that comes from the creativity of language and communication, it is ultimately education that occurs in coming to know God. How shall they call on someone they have not been introduced to? This is a rhetorical question he's asking. How shall they call on someone that they don't know, that they have not been introduced to? Well, we know very well from Scripture as a whole that everybody is acquainted with God. Even later, he's going to say the sound has gone out through all the earth. Everybody knows there is God. We were told earlier in Romans that there's no excuse because the light of nature has shown us that God exists and that we are all accountable to him. So everybody is acquainted. Everybody can say, everybody on some fundamental level has a sense that God exists. Even the person that denies the existence of God cannot look at the intricacy of the universe and say in their most private heart of hearts that I know 100% for sure that God is not real and does not exist. That's what nature does. It essentially says, yeah, God, he's that, he's that one over there standing in the corner. But what happens by when he's, what he says here, how shall they come to know him? He's saying, look, the task of what God has formed and put together in using language and using his people and using preachers and using his church and using Israel who know and believe in him, the task is from taking that acquaintance standing in the distant corner that you can maybe point out and recognize as someone and bringing him into intimate connection so that you know who he is what he is made of, what he is put together by, what he is pleased with, what he is offended by, what he has established for you to live a life that fulfills your potential and that comes to know the salvation of Jesus Christ. And what he says is everybody, everybody should have some way in which they communicate the truth of the Lord if they know the Lord themselves. And in that communication, that is how he is made known. Essentially, what he says, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they call and believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It is healthy in broad application of this passage for us all to grasp the fact that everyone is an instrument in God's hands. Everyone can and should serve the Lord in some capacity. Everyone has the ability on some level to communicate the gospel to those who have been put into their own lives. Everybody has the ability on some level to bring the light of truth, the light of Christ, into the darkness of the world. Everyone is an instrument, but there are some who are particularly used, particularly used, for the particular means of grace, that is, the preaching and communication of the word of God, that this passage is establishing and setting up as an absolute in the function of God's kingdom and the function of God's church. The apostle in the question of how shall they hear asserts the necessity of preaching and the preacher in the church. 
We're told in Hebrews that in times past, God spoke in a variety of ways. He spoke to the prophets, sure, but we also know from our reading in the Old Testament that God speaks through dreams, God speaks through symbols, God manifests himself in, in sometimes in physical forms. You see theophanies, you see Christophanies. He has made himself available, he has communicated in a variety of ways, but then the passage in Hebrews says he has now spoken through his Son, the Word of God, the living Word, and that is who we have. And that is the teaching of Scripture. And when he asks the question, how shall they hear without a preacher, he is asserting the fact that no one should have the understanding and the expectation that God will use another means besides hearing the word of God in some fashion to bring someone to salvation. There is no trap door that if they had never heard or if there was no communication or if someone in some way did live in a bubble on some level that there was no understanding on any way of who God was or what salvation was in him. He says there's no way other than hearing the word of God. That's what he's asserting in these rhetorical questions here. There is no biblical expectation that suddenly, snap of the fingers, people will come to know Jesus. You can bring up certain anecdotal stories of people who have that testimony. And I could say if that's genuine, then praise the Lord. But if I'm going to stick with the scripture and what the scripture teaches, I have to stick with what he's saying here and elsewhere, that he's now spoken by his son. And he has to be introduced and taught and defended. And when God the son himself came to earth, he was also a preacher teacher. See, when we start creating this idea that, oh, people don't respond well to words and language anymore, people don't respond well to the introduction of God, or people don't respond well to the teaching of the word of God, there has to be some other way to communicate the truth of the gospel. Let's communicate with only pictures, or let's communicate in dance, or let's communicate in a good movie, or let's communicate in a song. All of those things are useful tools and useful helpers, but they are not the essential and biblically warranted means of grace that God has established for his church. How shall they hear without a preacher? Words are necessary. The word of God must be read. It must be presented. It must be explained. It must be understood. It must be absorbed. It must be meditated on. It must be digested. And it must be given out into all the world. And when you look through history of where the most genuine faith was spread and was planted. Look, in, not only in the New Testament scriptures that we actually have that bring accounts of the, the growing and spreading of the church, but you can look at the pockets and periods of history where the most genuine and sincere and stable and biblically grounded revivals occurred. They were revivals that were based primarily on the preaching and teaching of the word of God, and God worked through those things. If you show me a revival in history or a so-called revival or awakening in history that was not solely based on the word of God, I bet if you look a little bit deeper, you will also see numerous heresies and numerous errors that came out of those revivals. And you will see that faith was not necessarily based solely in Christ alone, but was probably based in something else along the way. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? The person who God calls 
is set apart to a preaching ministry. And that person must know the supreme conviction of his calling. I made the statement earlier, we're all called to something. We all should serve the Lord in some, some capacity. And my prayer is that however you serve the Lord, or however you understand your calling before God, that you have a passion and a conviction for it. But all the more, he says, how shall they hear? How shall they, hear? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Sure, there's a physical sending. But in that understanding of scent, there is also that sincere conviction that comes from God. Whenever a denomination or a church or an ordaining body that is worth its substance examines a person, sure, they will examine their knowledge and their content and their education. But one of the more fundamental things that they ask about first is why your conviction. What is your calling? What is making you tick and what is motivating you to do this? All have a calling from God, but not, are, all, not all are given the calling and conviction to preach. You may be surprised to know that many students sitting in seminaries don't even have the calling and conviction to preach. I remember having conversations with numerous people when I asked what they planned on doing with their education would say, I really don't know. I'm hoping I find that out here. Don't, un don't think that everyone who goes to get the education necessarily has the conviction and the calling. Don't think that everybody who stands and preaches or teaches necessarily has the true conviction and the calling that comes from God. There is a discernibility in that. He says, he sa he, not all are sent. Preachers must be sent in that conviction, in that pa passion, so that when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, when a lack of conversions come, when a ministry has its infighting and its divisions, when churches face bad times, that preacher understands that it is not entirely dependent on himself for which those things are happening. And it is not entirely dependent on himself to fix all those things or to correct all those things. That it is not necessarily him to blame. For when his calling and his sending are you go here, he understands that that faithfulness must be applied where he is. And if he is faithfully preaching and teaching and these things happen, then he doesn't bear all the weight and responsibility and the crushing, the crushing uh, despair that can fall on someone who thinks that they are the savior of the church or that they stand in Jesus' place. No, you are an ambassador. You are but the messenger. The same would go for the flip side. When that person is sent to a ministry or to a church and he sees wonderful, amazing growth and prosperity in that ministry or in that church, his conviction of reminding himself that he is sent from God, by God, and for God will keep him from becoming puffed up with pride and thinking that it is his gifting or his skills or his ability or his personality or his jokes or his voice or his, his looks that brought that church up and raised it up. God must get all the glory, for God is the one who sends and God is the one who calls. But he says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? And I said, there is an aspect 
of the conviction of being sent to a place. Paul, we see in his missionary journeys, has a conviction to go a certain place. You can speak to a missionary who is anointed and sent and called, and they will say, I feel called to go to this specific place. I would submit that the challenge to anyone who ministers anywhere would be that they don't look at another field of service or they don't look at another land and say, gee, I wish I was there because what I'm doing here is not valuable. Or I know, I know that uh, I'm serving the Lord here wherever I am, but boy, it would be so much better if I could serve him elsewhere. If that is the conviction, then you are sent to the wrong place. I, by conviction, feel very cold and very sent here to Somerset County, Bridgewater, New Jersey. This place needs the gospel preached, just like China and Africa need the gospel preached, but so does suburban New Jersey. Someone has to be sent to these places. Somebody has to have a passion for these places. And I do not think it is right for someone to think that the calling and conviction to preach in New York City or the calling and, and conviction to preach in Africa or the calling and conviction to preach in Asia is, is somehow a more valuable calling and conviction than to preach anywhere else in the world. God sends his specific ministers to a specific place and he sends his specific, his specific servants to a specific church to build up that ministry and that church. How shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Every place needs the gospel. And you are put in this particular place to serve and to make that gospel message clear. And you are not to be thought less because you're not somewhere else. God is able to valuably use you anywhere. And here is where you are. And if your conviction is not to be elsewhere, then look to walk with the Lord in all that you do. He says, he says they must be sent. And he says when they are sent, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good news. We know this verse. We've sing, we sing this verse in the, in the chorus, Our God Reigns. But these verses played a large part in my own calling and conviction as well. When I was in high school, people would say, Oh, you should be on the stage. You should be doing voiceovers. You should read uh, books for audio books. Or you should go into singing. You should do all these things. And I, my thought was, if I have been gifted with an ability to speak or to sing, then I want to use it for the Lord. That's how I want to use it. And I want to bring the good news to people. I want to bring the good news of the gospel to a situation two ears, two hearts, two minds, and whatever my Lord has gifted me with, may I use it for his glory and may I use it for his communication before I would ever use it for something else. I want to preach because I believe it is the best thing I can do with my, with my ability, with my body, with my mind, with all that I am. And I also believe that what I have to say from the word of God is the best news that could ever be spoken. Preaching, when you say the word preach, our culture has deemed that as a negative, negative word. Sorry, didn't mean to preach. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I have to preach at you. 
It's considered something that is abrasive or something that is holier than thou. And certainly, it can have a negative understanding because if you're preaching biblical reality, you're going to call people out for their sin. But when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, he's saying, yes, there will be a conviction and a condemnation that comes from an understanding of God's holiness and from the perfect law of God. But the good news, the gospel of good tidings, is that that law does not crush us and condemn us. That law does not have to send us to hell because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, and all your sins are forgiven in him. And so how beautiful to hear those words, how beautiful to embrace those words, how beautiful to understand the biblical reality that it is glad tidings, that it is good things that God has said to us. Are we sinners without hope? Absolutely. But there is hope in Christ's righteousness, in the sovereign mercy of God, in who he is and in what he has done. It is indeed good news. He says, but they have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, has, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We are told that faith comes by hearing. That good news must be God's good news. He will expand upon the fact that not everyone who hears is going to believe. And we've touched on that in previous chapters. But let's remember that what he's saying in, in reading, in reading here and in understanding and in applying and in bringing out the good and necessary consequences of this text is saying God sends his communicators to preach, but those who communicate must be preaching God's word. If faith comes by hearing, you have to ask the question, faith in what? What are they hearing? Are they hearing good advice? Are they hearing inspirational stories? Are they hearing funny anecdotes? Are they hearing good jokes? Are they hearing news analysis, economic analysis? All these things people like to listen to. Why do you think there are channels on television, on YouTube, entire websites devoted to all those things? They make money because people want to hear that. They want to be entertained. They want something that is going to bring them into a sense of self-focus, self-enjoyment. Whereas the gospel, while it is gloriously, wonderfully good news, is going to take you out of yourself and put your focus on God and on your neighbor. And that is much harder for the natural person to stomach and to swallow. This passage teaches us the necessity of what must be preached. I preach not myself, but Christ. I am not here to represent myself, but Christ. I've said this before and I'll say it again because I know that it can, it is something that in our world is more foreign than perhaps it should be. But this is the reason that I put on the robe. This is the reason that I use the pulpit to cover myself, to diminish myself. I have the same thing on every week. And I don't walk back and forth in front of you. I stand behind uh, a structure that elevates the word of God. And I am covered in the office of what I am doing so that it is not Chris Basil and his background and his stories and his experiences that, that you're getting. 
while any preacher will add his personality into the mix, that's not the point. The temptation is strong for anybody who gets up to speak to entertain the audience. The temptation is strong for anybody who gets up to speak to want to be pleasing. Maybe you've noticed, I've noticed it in myself, when I have a particularly hard thing to speak on, I tend to look down when I say it. Because it's hard as a human being to look at you and tell you something that is difficult. And I have no problem looking at you when I tell you something that is marvelous and wonderful. That is me having to die and God having to live more and more. But what is essential is to fight the temptation of self and to preach Christ. The temptation to entertain must be put away, but the necessity to communicate what is written must, must always be held up. The prophets would declare, thus saith the Lord, and every good preacher who is called must proclaim the same thing. How beautiful are the feet. They have not all obeyed the gospel, but faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He says, they believe, faith comes by hearing and then believing and obeying. We know that God's word, God's work is something that is a, a belief. Belief is God's work. Okay? When somebody says, I came to believe because of so-and-so's ministry, or I came to believe because I read this book, or I came to believe because of these logical arguments, or I came to believe because my family communicated this to me, or I came to believe because I was in church all my life, or I came to believe because I have no explanation one day. No matter what they say, no matter what the testimony, all those, me all those things were used to help and used to educate. But anybody who comes to believe comes to believe because it is the working of the Holy Spirit. It is the working of God that did that. And so hearing the word of God, believing the word of God, is God's work. God's word works his way, and God's way then directs unto obedience. And in obeying the word of God, verse 16, we're told they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed our report? Many hear. Many profess belief. Many even live lives that perhaps look like belief. But not all have truly obeyed the gospel. Now you say, well, there's grace involved in the gospel. So what does it look like to obey the gospel? I know what obeying a law looks like, but what does it look like to obey the good news? I believe it is a heart, a heart sentiment perhaps beyond anything else. It is a heart sentiment that says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee. Take my life and whatever you have, do with it. Whatever you will, I am satisfied. For I am safe in your arms and in your hands, and I entrust myself wholly unto you. That's an element of obeying the gospel. Job, for all his issues and all his struggles, can make the statement in the midst of his book, though God slay me, yet I will trust in him. 
Now, even many of us sitting in this room will struggle with that statement. Though God pour out on me all manners of horror and evil and wickedness, yet I will trust in him. Because in obeying the gospel, I know that he is the only source of good and that he knows better. We spoke this morning about in Sunday school about God's incomprehensible attribute. There is no way that creation can ever fully understand the great scope and breadth of God. And even grasping that understanding that we cannot fully grasp God, but we know that he is full of mercy and justice and goodness and love, enables us to say, look, my circumstances from an earthly standpoint, from a human physical standpoint, don't seem all that wonderful. But I know that my Lord is good and I know that he's ruling and I know he's alive and I know he has plans. And my life, my convictions, my actions, my goal, my heart will belong to him despite my circumstances. And I will do what he says even if everyone else tells me otherwise. For what do I have here that is truly of my own creation? What do I have here that I did not receive Jesus says in the Gospels, can you add a stature to you? You can't add an inch to your stature. You can't change the color of your hair. You can't do those things. How much power do you really have? And if you are investing yourself in this life as opposed to the arms and the hands of God, then you have, then you have gone into something that will never fully satisfy and certainly never save. What do I have here that I did not receive? Trust and obey the gospel. The sound has gone out to all the earth, is what, is what the, the next verse says, quoting from the Old Testament, but it comes in response to Paul's rhetorical question, have they not heard? Now, you'd think he has touched on this before, but he feels he needs to go back to it again for his audience and certainly for us. Have they not heard? Yes, indeed, they have heard. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, this does not negate and cancel out everything he just said about their needing to be communication, their needing to be preaching, and their needing to be the gospel. It goes back to what I said at the beginning, that all are aware, and because of that awareness, that acquaintance, uh, they are without an excuse. The Gentiles came to believe but the Jews did not. And that is at the heart of Jews in mass, in mass, did not. And that is at the heart of his question here. The sound has gone out to all the earth. But I say, did Israel not know? I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. All are aware, but God has his own working plan for unbelief. And while everybody who disobeys the gospel and everybody who does not believe and everybody who does not hear and everybody who turns away from the communication of God's word is responsible for that action themselves because it is their own sinful nature that has done it, their own hardness that has done it, God will take that unbelief and will use it for something nonetheless. God's own working plan for, un for the unbelief of Israel was this. And he says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. When you see, in other words, he says to the nation state of Israel, when you see the Gentiles come in, it will cause all type of emotions to, 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 to bubble up inside you. 
It'll cause all kinds of conviction of one sort or another to bubble up inside you. And either it will work to help you to see the glorious aspect of God's grace, or it will harden you all the more in your own self-centered ideal of religion and who God is and who he should save and who he should be merciful to. Why resist? There's no reason to resist. There's one way, one truth, and one life. And if you seeing God, and if seeing God's work causes you to hate that work, or causes you to despise God, or causes you to be bitter at what He's doing the way He does it, you remember that that in itself will never prosper, will never help you, will never build you up. It's futile. So don't resist. There is one way, one truth, one life, one belief, one trust. And we lean wholly on Him. Isaiah is very bold. He says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. When he says, I was found by those who did not seek me, I think we can all look at that and see how God reached out to the Gentiles and the nations who, as we've spoken about in the past, were not uh, temple worshipers in Israel by and large. They did not uh, know the covenants. They would not count themselves as physical descendants of Abraham. They were not people who memorized the, the law of God and, and knew it like the back of their hand. But yet, God's mercy was exp- extended to them. It was an unexpected faith. And we can look at that and I think we can resonate with that to a great degree. It was an unexpected faith. Could any of us, in looking back at our lives, have really, have, can really, when we're honest, say, well, of course God saved me. There is an unexpected nature whenever we can come to know God. And when we come to know the unexpected, the undeserved aspect of grace, that unexpected faith becomes all the more important. Look at those who do believe. Look at those who know his truth. And what a marvelous miracle it is to see them come to, to, to faith. You look at the change that you might see in a person's life when they come to faith in Christ. You look at the change you might see in your own life. And look at how unexpected that is and how marvelous that is. And in calling back his message about the sending of a preacher, or calling back his message about the necessity of the word being preached, I think an illustration we have that ties in here in Scripture is the account of Jonah. When Jonah is sent to Nineveh, he's got the hardness and jealousy of Israel that's spoken of here. They're not your people. They're wicked. They shouldn't be saved. But yet, God sends, God puts, God demands, and Jonah goes, and Jonah just proclaims some simple words. Believe. God's going to judge you. And the nation, the pagan nation of Nineveh, comes to faith. Totally unexpected, totally without precedent, totally without any, any logical grasp. You have a, a, a lackluster prophet who looks like death being swept aboard onto the shore and monotonously says the same thing as he walks through the streets and people believe. That's where you see the work of God. That's where you see his unexpected grace. That's where you see his unexpected faith. And may that understanding be in and of us as well. As hard as it may seem, God will work where he wills and God will do where he will. And we, his servants, must answer the call and must have the conviction. 
and must understand the wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus. Grace is not human. Grace is not devised by humanity. I don't know how many times I need to say it. I need to say it all the time. We work on a system of merit. Humanity always works on a system of merit, even amongst wonderfully devoted Christians. The old man, the old woman will creep in and will say something like, well, they're not measuring up. Well, they could do better. Well, if only they tried harder, they'd get this. Grace is not human. Grace is, I don't care what you've done. I'm forgiving you. And I love you, and I'm going to save you, and you're going to be mine. Grace is always unexpected, as I said. And grace is behind all hearing, believing, and obeying. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. He gets all the splendor. Be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted among all the earth. And may we trust and obey. May we believe and may we understand that there is great blessing. We hear the word of God and by his grace keep it and live it. Let's pray together. Lord, may we be people of the word. May we hear it. May we believe it. May we obey it. And then may we communicate it and and live it out as well. May you work in our lives in unexpected ways. May you work in our families' lives, in our friends' lives, in our communities' lives, in unexpected ways. May we see your marvelous, matchless, wonderful grace. May it abundantly flow from from every aspect of where we encounter people. And may your glory shine through all the earth. We ask your will to be done here on earth as it's already being done in heaven. And we await with excitement to see what you will do. Use us and direct us, we pray, for your glory, we pray in his name. Amen.